Okay, so tonight we are going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 3. We've got two chapters tonight, chapters 3 and 4, as we continue to go through 1 Chronicles. And as we come to this somewhat mysterious book, in that we start this book with chapter after chapter of a lot of names, I remind us of why these names are here and what the context is. When the tribe of Judah went into captivity in 586 B.C., their final They went in three waves as Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon conquered them. 586 is when they were completely gone. And they did 70 years of captivity. God promised they'd come back, and they did. And when they came back, they were led by Ezra. And as the people were coming back to their land and to their inheritances that they had not seen, certainly for the younger generations ever, the registry is super important of like your identity, like Ancestry.com who you are, what tribe you identify with, what territory would have been yours, and where's the original boundaries and properties that belong to your great-grandparents and your grandparents and stuff like that. So the, the Chronicles of the Kings begins with this panoramic of human history, but for Judah, the specific element of their land and what's being restored to them by the Lord. They're going to rebuild the temple under Ezra. They're going to rebuild the city walls under Nehemiah. They're going to read the word of God in the rain standing to recommit themselves to the Lord. It's a beautiful thing, the context of this book. So as I mentioned, we went through 2 Kings and saw all those kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, but this book begins with Adam. It starts with Adam And we saw last week the main topic was Abram, who is Abraham, the father of faith. And tonight we go forward, and now the emphasis is on David and the Davidic kings, Solomon and these guys, Judah, and then eventually Simeon. So we're going to look at these tribes and uh, their names, and the background is identity and who gets what and where. So with that in mind, we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, These were the sons of David. Now, remember, David is around 1000 B.C., the great King David, the second king of Israel after God had rejected Saul. David, these are the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, Jezreelitess. The second, Daniel by Abigail, the Carmelitess. And the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmi, king of Geshur. So that's a Canaanite king. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Sheftiah by Abital. The sixth, Ethrim by his wife Eglah. These six were born to him in Hebron. And there he reigned seven years and six months. In, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. So as David comes into this narrative now and the, the line of Davidic, the Davidic line, and again, he's from the tribe of Judah, we know that. We start with this reference to the six wives and the six sons of the wives in Hebron. Remember, when he became king, he first reigned over Judah for that seven years, while the sons of Saul and various people, you know, ruled in the north, and eventually that all collapsed, and David unified the kingdom and became king over all, and then moved to Jerusalem. So his reign was over one tribe, and then eventually the twelve. And so the six were there. Now, what's interesting about this list is, and we got some of this, of course, in Samuel and Kings and whatnot, but there in Hebron, he had these six wives, which, you know, who's ever going to understand that? But he did. And he had the six children. And the first thing that gets my attention on this list, and really the main thing that gets my attention, is, of course, Abigail, the Carmelitess. She's an amazing woman, and we'll get to her in a minute. But her son, Daniel, 
in the midst of these kings. So of of these sons of the king. So these six sons, if you notice these names and you know your Bible, you know that Amnon was the firstborn and heir to everything of David. Amnon raped his half-sister. And then the third son in the line, Absalom, from another woman, from another wife, killed Amnon. And in between Amnon and Absalom is Daniel. He's got like a different name, like it's Cheomash there in the record of Samuel. So it's probably like a first name, middle name thing. He's the son of uh, Abigail. And we talked about this when we were going through Samuel, like how he just stayed out of the mess. And then the fourth son, Adonijah, he also, he was a conspirator. So we have the rapist, the murderer, and the conspirator of these four. And in, the, in between, so in the ISA World Surfing Championships I used to coach in, they give gold, silver, bronze, and copper. So if you got fourth place, you still got a medal, right? So this is, these first four, the first four, it's number two that stays out of the fray. When you look at these names, we get Amnon, Absalom, and Ajanah, with quite a bit of narrative in other parts of the Bible. The son of uh, Abigail, not so much. He's just there. But to me, it'd be interesting if he was number three or four anyways, that he didn't get in the mix of all this drama, because that's what it was, telenovela, right? You know, Spanish for drama. Uh, it's, 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 it's trauma for power, the conniving and the striving for wealth and millions of dollars of wealth and control and power over people. Number one, thinks he can take his half-sister and do that to her. Number three says, you don't do that to my sister. Kills number one. Number four says, I'm going to be the king and take this to myself. Blows the trumpet for himself. And then gets a second chance from Solomon. Still tries to be the king and is ultimately executed for that. He's a conspirator. And there's number two. The second one in line. Never mentioned in any record of the Bible for causing drama, strife, confusion, or whatever. You, we might say from what we can read by what's not said, he stayed in his lane. He knew his place, and he didn't cause grief to his mom, and he didn't cause grief to his dad, because we get so much narrative on those who did that he's not, he's not mentioned in any of those stories. Listen, if it's football and it's quarterbacks, he's the backup quarterback. And we don't see him in the ambition and the striving and the contention for power and wealth and control. He's just listed twice in our Bible. But he's listed as the son of Abigail, which brings us back to Abigail. Because what we did last week, we looked at a few names and the significance of these these people, Adam and uh, Abram. So tonight, I just want to look at Abigail for a moment. Abigail gets about a chapter of the Bible back in 1 Samuel. And when David was fleeing from King Saul, his father-in-law, and after David had give, after King Saul had taken his daughter, who he had given to David to be wife, and given her to another man, it's in that background that David and his mighty men of God are cruising the countryside, running for their lives from everything that Saul's plotting against them. But they're becoming stronger. And in that process, they protected Nabal's flocks and wealth. Nabal was a very wealthy man. We're told he's a very wealthy man, extremely wealthy. Not just wealthy, but like extremely wealthy. And David and his men, without ever charging money or anything, protected his herdsmen and his flocks, which was his wealth, from any harm coming to them. And then there's a point where David went to the house of Nabal and asked for some financial assistance, some food for his men. And Nabal said, basically Nabal said, you're a rebel, 
I don't even know who you are, but we know slaves run away from their masters, and you might be that. So he really, you know, it wasn't enough that he didn't help David. He kind of, he took cutting remarks at David and implied like you're a rebel before God when nothing could be further from the truth. Because, of course, we're told by the narrative of the Bible that David had a heart for God. So David, when he found this out, was furious. He's, he says, if God used more so to me if I don't strike down everybody in the house of Nabal for this, this act against us. And the news came to Abigail, Nabal's wife. Now, we know in this culture she probably had no choice in marrying Nabal, right? She probably had no choice in that. We understand the Middle Eastern culture. And a lot of the world cultures, even to this day, operate like this. But, so her husband, Nabal means fool. Her husband was a fool, but a wealthy fool. So she at least had, you know, economic blessings in that situation, if not spiritual blessings. And we know that she had multiple maidservants, and she came from wealth. Well, she's smart. And so we're told she was beautiful physically, and she was wise spiritually. So she runs, she goes to meet David with all this food and preparation and bows down before him and says, put this sin on me, put it on me, not on anyone else. And she said, have mercy on my husband's house, have mercy on us all, enables his name and a fool he is. But I beg of you, do not do this, because when you become king, you will regret doing this on this day. She, she saw where he was going. She knew who he was, and she saw where he was going. And she said, when you are king, this will be a small matter in your sight. So please don't do this. And think about like how powerful David was. Just his presence tilted the room spiritually. His physical presence, he was handsome. And he's a bad dude. He took down Goliath, you know? Like he's a bad dude. Like he's that guy. He's just that guy. He's not just that guy in his appearance, but he's got the resume that's that, that's that guy. And he has a heart for God. One of the most unique human beings that's ever lived. And this woman falls down on her knees before him and she begs him to not avenge himself. And this is what it says. He said to her in response to that, he says, go in peace to your house. I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Ladies, I want you to think about that for a minute. The great King David, who's lost his first wife, he married her, and then dad, father-in-law took her back and gave her to someone else. He's running for his life because his father-in-law is trying to kill him. He could take. See, David could be a taker if he wants. He could take anyone he wants. He can make her his, his wife right then and there. He can do whatever he wants. He's got 500 mighty men. Like, he can do what he wants. He's coming to avenge himself and wipe out everybody. But this woman's spiritual presence and her spiritual power is so profound as she's willing to take the the guilt of her husband upon herself and begs for mercy and intercedes on his behalf that he says, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Ladies, that's really what we want before the Lord, isn't it? We want to be respected for being a godly woman. And she was a godly woman. Now, when she t- her husband was drunk at this time. Her drunken husband's having a party and she saves his life and all the male offspring in the house. We don't know if any of them were hers. But then the Lord strikes him down and within 10 days he dies. Then David proposes to marry her. So he sends messengers and he says, he sends messengers. It says he, when he heard that her husband died, he, he sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as wife. And when the servants of David had come to Abigail, they said, um, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. 
And then she arose and bowed her face to the earth. And this is the second time she did this. Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. This, this, not only is this a powerful, godly woman, this is a humble woman. This woman tilts the room. She tilts the room with her power and her presence in the Lord. She doesn't have to be loud or obnoxious. See, Solomon wrote all about the evil women. They're loud and obnoxious and have to have their way. And it's all about them. No, no matter what translation of the Bible, you read those chapters in Proverbs about the harlotous woman, there's women you can picture. And no matter what translation you have, you can just picture that woman in any society. This woman is really rare. This woman's very rare. She's got this outward beauty, but that's not her strength. Her strength is her inward beauty with the Lord. And even when she's being proposed to by David, it's not the most most romantic proposal, but nonetheless, he's good looking, he's rolling, he took down Goliath, and he's asking her to marry him. And she says, I'll wash the feet of your servants. It just sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he said, I've given you an example of how you should be. I was on a website today for one of the churches that we've supported in Uganda for over 10 years. I can't believe I waited this long to go on their website. But I went on their website. It's there in Uganda, uh, Fort Port, Uganda. I looked it up, looked at all the photos, because I want to feel more connected with the people we serve and support financially at times. And uh, as I was, it's the Clarksons, but I realized, I found out the Clarksons, he's not the main pastor, but their, their website was current, the studies were current, and I went on to one of the Bible studies. It was January. Oh, look at this, a current website in Africa. I mean, I don't know what I thought, but I was impressed. Like, yeah, this is a, it's current, it's functional. Wes Bentley planted this church years ago. I'm like, well, that's impressive for Wes. But the study, I listened to the audio, and with that heavy, you know, you know African English has almost like a British accent. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty tends to be heavy that way from back in the colonial days or whatever. And all he was saying, as I looked, I just looked at all these images of this community in Africa and what their lifestyle looks like and their world, 70,000 people in Port Fort. Uh, and I was like, and it's like, and he's talking about being the servant of all, about how Jesus takes the role of servant. And I thought, you know, most people in Africa, if you don't know this, because I've been studying Africa a lot lately, they're trying to figure out how to get out of Africa. It's the brain drain. That is, that's why so many Africans drowned in the Mediterranean trying to get to Italy and these other places because they're trying to get out for better opportunity and much like Latinos come to America and send money back to Latin countries, that's what Africans do when they get into Europe and take the lowest jobs in Europe. They send the money back to their relatives in Nigeria, Mauritania, and all these other places. They're trying to get out to get ahead. And I listened to a Bible study from a pastor today of a Calvary Chapel in a town of 70,000 people in Uganda saying, we're called to be the servants of all because Jesus is the servant of all. Now, how inspiring is that? What a reminder to me and to all of us. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom to many. We like to be served. We don't like to serve. Abigail said, I would be willing to wash the feet of my Lord's servant. And you just got to believe her stock went up in the eyes of David. She had sexual intimacy with David. She had a son, who we just read about, Daniel. And we don't read anything good or bad. And you know, really the way our news is, since most of it is 95% negative, isn't it good to not be in the news? In most cases, the, the, the news is sensationalized and it's negative. And the fact that this woman's son 
the backup quarterback, never became the starting quarterback, but never caused grief, never raped anybody that we know of, never murdered anybody, never conspired against anybody. He's just known as the son of Abigail the Carmelitess. Now, ladies, we read in Proverbs, the virtuous woman. I just got to read the back part of this text to remind us what kind of women we want to be, what kind of women we want to marry, and what kind of women men we want to esteem. Verse 25 says this in the back part of the very end. Strength and honor are the clothing of the virtuous woman. She shall rejoice in time to come because she has nothing to be ashamed of and her hope is in the Lord. She opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. You know, so many of the women the world esteems are just loud, abrasive, and obnoxious. This is the woman that rules and reigns in eternity in the kingdom. This is the woman that rules over who even knows what in the next dimension. The woman who opens her mouth with wisdom and the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gate. And this is what we're talking about right here. This is the godly woman. This is the woman that glorifies Christ. This is the woman I've been fortunate enough to be married to for almost 35 years. This is the woman I'd want my daughters to be, Hannah and Leah, with their husbands. Leah married for 10 years with three kids, married to Jacob. Hannah married for nine years, the pastor's wife, married to Nate. This is, this is what I want my granddaughters, Zippy and Clementine, to be like. Because what God esteems is all that matters. And I will still even go on from here with her just a little bit more because I'm going to read to you 1 Peter. And ladies, you know this text in chapter 3. But just to remind ourselves what really is esteemed in God's kingdom and not be confused by everything outside these doors. 1 Peter 3, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even some that don't obey the word, like Nabal, that they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by reverence, do not let your adornment merely be your outward, arranging the hair, wearing of gold, and put on fine apparel. Now, I would imagine Abigail says she was beautiful and she was rich, so she could have looked as good as she wanted to be. She, she could, and she probably did. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God, which is exactly who Abigail was when she saved her husband and the entire household as an intercessor. It's exactly who she was when she agreed to marry David and be his wife and gave him a son who did not cause him grief. For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and do not fear with any terror. See, God has such a great plan for humanity, men and women, the genders, our roles, his calling on our lives. And Abigail really is that special because ladies and gentlemen, body of Christ, she was that woman of the Old Testament and she is the example for that woman in the New Testament. And let me just add this thought. I am so grateful, not only for my wife, but all the godly women that have been a part of worship generation in the history of our ministry. 
You know, Amy Fon, who ran for office recently, right, in the last election, Amy Fon, you know, from, you know, she was running for, like, the congresswoman's seat. She used to serve on the worship generation team back at Calvary Costa Mesa, a godly woman. All these different godly women. You know, Sarah Hill, who we support in missions. Sarah Yarley. All of you, Susan Branch, all the deacons' wives, and Haley, all of you, you, you women are amazing. What an example. When, when Daniel Gutierrez shows up here last month with his fiance, Hannah, you know, they're, they're Z generation, and I see the women talking to them. I was like, these are the women that we want as role models for Hannah and the Z generation. They're in this church, which takes us back to Titus, where it tells the, that the older women minister to the younger women and show them how to live their lives. So whether you feel great about your life in the past or who you are right now is what really matters, and not so much the past. And ladies, the older ladies, whoever we are, we get to invest, you get to invest in the younger women in a way that no one else can. It's your ministry. Be the Sarah. Be that woman in 1 Peter 3. Be the virtuous woman. And be like Abigail. And I got to thinking, before we move on, from this, one more thing about Abigail and her son. In a palace with millions of dollars and people conniving for power and strength, I'm sure at the king's table, when David would look around and all the drama was going on him, he'd look over at Daniel and go like, just be so grateful. And if Daniel ever said like, hey, Pop, can I have a word with you? I, I would imagine he'd be like, sure, how can I help you, son? And when all the conniving was going on and all these women are conspiring and, you know, 16, there's a total of 15, no, 15, yes, nine and, nine and six. All these women, because they didn't give them certificate of order, they're just there in the palace, like it was a big dinner hall. When something was really stumping David, do you think that he looked at Makah, the daughter of the... Canaanite king for wisdom, or did he look at Abigail? Like, when he's looking around the room, like, I need some wisdom from a godly woman right now. Who do you think he looked at at the dinner table? When he looked at those 16 women that were wives, which one do you think is like, hey, it's like, we don't know what his affection was for her, you know, as time went on. Bathsheba obviously became the main wife. She's the queen mother later on. But, you know, David was moved by guilt. He had her husband killed, right? You know, like, you know, like, you get older, it's like, you know, it's, it's just the path of least resistance or just, you know, whatever. Like, who knows what David really felt for Abigail, but she was gorgeous and she was godly. And I know this, in that palace for the next 33 years plus, that's the woman that had the law of kindness on her lips and spoke with wisdom and authority. I'm not sure you can say that about the other women. And Bathsheba had no choice in how her role played out. But in a, in a palace of women, she's the one that we're going to counsel for. And by the way, because Haley and us were the pastors we having a conversation the night after church about women in ministry and all this stuff. I just quoted Pastor Chuck. Pastor Chuck, you know, you say, well, about women in ministry. He's like, I might be the head, but, you know, Kay's, Kay's the neck. You know, she, she, you know, you know, everyone knew if you wanted Pastor Chuck to do something, you got to win Kay's heart. And my wife has given me great counsel for 35 years. You're like, oh, they're a church plan. Like, Listen, if it wasn't for Jennifer, there'd be nothing. Like, God gave me a great helpmate, and that's all part of it. And women are amazing gifts to planet Earth, and you're created in the image of God and the image of man. And you're called to glory, just like men are. And in Christ, there's neither male nor female, but we're both one in Christ, but with different roles. 
And the devil wants to confuse those things. But let God be true and every man a... Right, okay. So isn't that wonderful? What a great study on, on Abigail. Like, wow, she's beautiful. It inspires me. Like, you know, two weeks ago, I sat at Calvary Chapel Vero Beach in the foyer for the women's ministry on a Tuesday night. And I sat there in the lobby and watched my daughter on the big screen teach a Bible study to those women. And I just can't tell you the joy that that gave me. Wow, huh? Yeah, praise the Lord. Okay, so now we read on from that first group. That was one of our, that's our absolutely main application tonight. And guys, you're not a girl, but walk in humility and don't be stupid, okay? All right, so we pick it up in verse four going forward. Okay, so back to David, or excuse me, verse five. And there were born to him in Jerusalem, Shimea, Shobad, Nathan, and Solomon, four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Emiliel, also there was Ebhar, Elashama, Eliphalet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, Eliphalet, nine in all. These were all the sons of David besides the sons of the concubines and Tamar, their sister. So now we get these sons all born in Jerusalem. Solomon, you go like, oh, Solomon, book of wisdom, Solomon. Listen, I draw your attention to Nathan. Of the four sons of Solomon, excuse me, the four sons of Bathsheba, Solomon, believe it or not, for our salvation, has nothing to do with it. So it's great to read the words of Solomon's in Proverbs. I do it all the time. Multiple times a week, I'm reading Proverbs. Wisdom, 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 knowledge, understanding, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, wisdom, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, back and forth, up and down, left and right, right? Okay, but it helps with life and it helps with business and good decisions. But Solomon doesn't save anybody. But Nathan saves everybody. Because if you know your New Testament, in the genealogy of the Virgin Mary, going back all the way to the first Adam, and Jesus born of Mary, the Virgin, it is her. See, Jesus is of the promise of the Messiah, the line of David, because he has to be of the house of David. And he goes through this way, through through Bathsheba by Nathan, and, and thus... She has the right. See, Mary has the legal right to the throne, and her offspring is Jesus through the virgin birth and conception, immaculate conception, and that's how we're saved. Because Joseph, her husband, he too is in the line, but he's in the line of Solomon. And from the line of Solomon comes Jeconiah, which is the next verse. And Jeconiah was cursed by God so that none of his descendants could ever reign in Jerusalem ever again. So, see, Jesus cannot be the son of Joseph because he's under the curse of Jeconiah. He is not the biological son of Joseph. He is the son of God, born of the virgin, and he's born of the virgin through Nathan and Mary's line. So that name, think of all the headlines for all those years in Jerusalem. Solomon this, Solomon that, the wisest man never lived. Meanwhile, Nathan's like, yeah, that guy. Isn't that the way it is with the Lord sometimes too? These people get all the press and all the headlines, and it's this person over here that the Messiah is going to come through. That's the significance of that name right there. And Solomon, we just spent a lot of time with him. Now we have the family of Solomon, the family of Jeconiah, and this will wrap up chapter 3 with these names and this genealogy. So we go, verse 10. Solomon's son, these are all the kings we just studied, of course, and we'll get them again in Chronicles, but more more insight, more details, and different perspectives. Solomon's son was Rehoboam. Abijah was his son. Asa was his son. Jehoshaphat, his son. 
Joram his son, Ahaziah his son, Joash his son, Amaziah his son, Azariah his son, Jotham his son, Ahaz his son, Hezekiah his son, Manasseh his son, Ammon his son, Josiah, yay, his son. The sons of Josiah were Johanan, the firstborn, the second Jehoiakim, the third Zedekiah, boo, the fourth Shalom. The sons of Jehoiakim were Jeconiah, his son, and Zedekiah, his son. So that's our Jeconiah, all right? Verse 17. And the sons of Jeconiah were Ahasir, Shetil, his son, Malcarim, Pediah, Shinazar, Jacamiah, Hoshima, Nabibiah, the sons of Pediah. So there's a subdivision. So you get the first list, and then you get the subdivision like the grandchildren. Were Zerubbabel and Shimei. The sons of Zerubbabel were Meshulam, Hananiah, Shomath, their sister, and Hashubah, Ahel, Barakiah, Hasadiah, and Jeshab, Hesed, five in all. The sons of Hananiah were Pelatiah, Jeshiah, the sons of Rephaiah, the sons of Arnon, the sons of Obadiah, the sons of Shechaniah. The sons of Shechaniah were Shemaiah, the sons of Shemaiah were Hatush, Egal, Bariah, Neriah, Shaphat, six in all. The sons of Neriah were Elonai, Hezekiah, and Azrakim, three in all. The sons of Elaniah were Hadavia, Elishib, Peliah, Akab, Jonanan, Delia, and Anani, seven in all. And again, these names are significant because all the people coming back from captivity are going to identify with these people for their inheritances and where they fit in going forward. And I just taught on Jeconiah, so you got that. So now we go forward in chapter 4. The sons of Judah, so we continue with now. So David, Solomon, and Jeconiah are all the kingly reign in Judah, and now we expand to the broader descendants of Judah. The sons of Judah were Perez, Hezron, Carmi, Hur, and Shobal. And Reiah, the son of Shobal, begot Jehath, and Jehath begot Ahumai and Lahad. These were the families of the Zoharites. These were the sons of the father of Etam, Jezreel, Ishma, Idbash, and the names of their sister was Haziel el Phoni. And Penuel was the father of Gador. Ezra was the father of Hushah. These were the sons of Hur, the firstborn of Ephrathah, the father of Bethlehem. See, because all those cities come from people, and this is the, how it works. And Asher, the father of Tekoi, had two wives, Hila and Nara. Nara bore him Ahuzam, Hefer, Temeni, Ha-Hashtari. These were the sons of Nara. The sons of Hila were Zareth, Zohar, and Ethnan. And Kaz begot Anab, Zobba, and the families of Aharel, the sons of Haram. Now, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez because I bore him in pain. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me and you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. So here in this road trip of names and genealogies and ancestry.com, we get this famous prayer of Jabez. 
This is about 10, 15 years ago, right? The prayer of Jabez was everything. You know, the books and the children's books and, you know, this one prayer. And it is an amazing prayer. Like, make no mistake about it. For prayers in the Bible, and if you want two verses that pack a boom, boom, or like a hip-hop boom, this is it. These two, these, this is powerful. The prayer of Jabez, we, he just all of a sudden, like, and now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. Like, now, wait a second. Where did he come from? Like, you know, like you're in a social gathering, like, hey, this is Jabez. He's more honorable than his brothers. You're like, oh, really? Wow. You're like, that's his introduction. So in the average of his society, he is more honorable than his brothers. Whatever his brothers were, he is more honorable. So right away we see he's the guy that takes the high road in a good way. He's commended as being honorable by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's quite a few things in this prayer of Jabez that get our attention, but I'm going to focus on one tonight. His mother called him Jabez, which means pain. So in her childbirth, she probably had a very hard pregnancy. And we've seen people, people have hard pregnancies. Even women that have ever had a hard pregnancy, you know, like how hard it just be so, man. All of our kids were high-risk pregnancies. And for you guys that have never been there, trust me, it's a great delivery is painful. A difficult delivery is unimaginable. All right? It's, it's a pain that, that men, they just don't know. So ladies, let me tell you, I acknowledge right now that we are clueless sons of Adam, and we have no idea what it's like for the pain of having a baby. And I've been there multiple times, and I can assure you, I, I know better and even claim, it just, you just, we just don't know. And you can't say, oh, it's like, listen, and guys, don't ever make the mistake of trying to compare any pain that you have to having a baby. All right. Rule number one of a son of Adam being married is never, never, ne- no, no, do not go there. Right? <laughs> that's, that, no, that's not going to produce a positive outcome, even for Abigail. Right? That's just not. Don't go there. It's just profound though that she named her son Pain, and in the Bible times, names are, are very important, and names become identities. And so you get a name, and that's, that's your identity. We, we saw this also in Genesis, where when Rachel had her second son and died in childbirth, and she wanted to call Benjamin Ben-Ami, which means son of my pain, uh, son of my sorrow. So she, as she's dying, she puts this label on her son, you are son of my sorrow. It's like, who does that? But that's what she did. And she passed. And that's who Jacob loved. But he, he refused to let that name define him because Jacob means heel grabber. And then God changed his name to Prince of God. So if anyone knows what a name change is like, it's Jacob. And he was not going to let his son, his last of his sons, be identified by his wife's grief in passing as son of my sorrow. And so he gave him the name son of my right hand. So he pronounced blessings on his son, Benjamin, and he changed his name. He would not let that name, he, he, Jacob said, no, he's grieving over his, the, the wife that he loved, but he's like, that's not going to work. That's just not going to go. That's not acceptable. And so to me, this gets my attention that the mom gave him this name, pain. So giving her some benefit of the doubt, it must have been a lot of pain. How much pain did she go through from her husband, from her life? Who even knows her story? Look, we all know you cannot live 80 years on planet Earth and not have a lot of pain. 
You're going to have physical pain, spiritual pain, mental pain, emotional pain. People hurt one another. And you live 80 years, you'll find out how much they do hurt one another. They hurt you from above, they hurt you from the side, and they hurt you from underneath. They hurt you indoors and outdoors. Sin causes pain, and death is the sting of sin and the ultimate pain. And you just can't... Life isn't a journey of being free from trouble. Life is is trusting in the Lord to bring you through those troubles every time the new one comes along. Life is filled with pain. But in Christ, our pain refines us to a deeper walk with the Lord, a greater appreciation of the Lord, and a greater service of the Lord, and a greater preparation for the glory of the Lord. But some people don't know how to cope with pain. They just, they just don't know how to cope with pain, whether they've been physically abused or mentally abused, hurt by the passing of loved ones. A lot of people just don't know how to deal with pain. And if we don't let Jesus, who says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and cast your burdens upon me, if we don't let him take those burdens, that means we got to carry them or find relief somewhere else. My mom lost both of her, both of her siblings before she was 30. And that's when my mom began to drink because alcohol was the uh, anesthetizer to her pain. It, it dulled the pain of the sorrow of losing her older sister that she was always compared to, but particularly her brother that she loved. And before he died of cancer, he lost a leg, amputated. And before that, her dad, Bud, flew to Italy to get the healing oil from the Catholic shrine to try and save the son. And as my dad said, desperate people do desperate things. I can't even imagine the pain my mom endured in that situation. And it all happened somewhere there in the mid-50s before I was born. This woman had great pain, but the mistake she made with her pain was to pass on her pain to her son with this label and this name. In Zig Ziglar's book, See You at the Top, he tells a story, it's a very well-known story, people use this example all the time, of of two sons of alcoholic parents. One son became an alcoholic and the other did not. When they asked the one son why he became an alcoholic, he said, because my parents are alcoholics. And then they asked the other son why he did not become an alcoholic, he said, because my parents were alcoholics. So you see, or as Abraham Lincoln said, I suppose those people who are most happy are those who choose to be happy. We make our own choices. We just, we make our own choices. Or as Henry Ford said, whether you think you can or think you can't, you are right. You can, if someone puts the, the pain name on you, if you accept it and let it define you, that's on you. But as it says in 2 Corinthians, we're to take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. And you see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does the gospel do? It liberates us from our identity in Adam and Eve where all sin and die. In Adam, all sin. In Adam, all die. In Adam, all are condemned. In Adam is hell and darkness. But if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. All things have passed away. All things are new. So now we have passed to life and light and hope of men, anchor of the soul. We're justified, not condemned. We have the hope of heaven and we walk in the light. See, so the glorious gospel takes us from the pain identity to the glory identity. And so we're being transformed from glory to glory. And so I don't have time for people putting toxic pain on me. 
You know, one of the things in ministry, it took me three decades to figure this out. Being a pastor doesn't mean I'm obligated to listen to someone dump on me for 30 minutes after service. When I was at Big Calvary, every third service, Scott knows the same people would be their third service and all the pastors would be running to get home for lunch and not be stuck with those people. And there are toxic people that just dump toxins on us and felt like it was our job and Chuck paid us to stand there and take their garbage being spewed on us after, after third service every Sunday. And they, we had the phone lines and Scott's my witness again. It was toxic call after toxic call after toxic call. And I'll come home and go like, that's the most unhealthy ministry I've ever seen to stand in that front, sit in that front office for two hours and take these calls from people that are delusional, sometimes demonic, deceive or whatever. And occasionally, yes, occasionally there was a good call. But by and large, it was toxic from top to bottom. And it took me about 60 years of life to realize that I do not have to accept that. And I just don't have time for it. Because the most valuable thing I have is time. And the same for you. And I'm told to redeem the time. And I've got people to see places to go, things to do for the glory of Christ. And I don't have time for toxic people dumping poison on me. And people are like, oh, Pastor Joey got less patient in his older years. Yeah, because I don't have time for that. So don't come here and do that to me. And I don't have time for putting people labels on me or you. But I can't deliver you from your label of that things put on you. You have to choose to do that. But I can deliver me from it. It really is that simple. Taking every thought captive and obedient to Christ. The pain label is just the label. And, and listen, he did the right thing. Jabez said, you know what? God, I pray this would never be true of me. You're a loser. You come from a divorce house. Your parents are alcoholics. They're drug addicts. They filed bankruptcy. They filed divorce. They had lawsuits. That's not you. The Bible holds no accountability for the children for the sins of the father and vice versa. It's not you. My sister was homeless from alcohol abuse for five years as a drunk, screaming at streetlights at seven in the morning, sleeping behind the dumpster at the dollar store in Vista. She chose that. It's not because my mom gave that to her. That's what she chose. When I got saved in 1987, I purposed to never drink alcohol again. And the planet Earth is a lot better because I don't. I'm like me just like this. And I say that somewhat facetiously, but like, I just don't have time for it. I'm losing my memory. I need everything I got going right now. Like, I can't reproduce the brain cells that I hurt a long time ago as it is. Right? So, don't, don't accept that. I, I exhort you in the name of Jesus, body of Christ, WG. Do not let someone put the pain label on you. Crawl to the Lord that that would not be true. Take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. And let the Lord deliver you. Because in the prayer of Jabez, he said, I pray that you would keep me from evil, that it may not cause pain, because sin is what causes pain. And he said, I would pray that this label would not define me. And he said, God, please don't let it define me. And what does it say? So God granted him his request. So if you want to see a beautiful world, you want to see unicorns and streets of gold, that's what you'll see. And God will help you see it. You don't understand what I'm saying. You want to walk in glory, he'll give you glory. You want to see glory, he'll show you glory. You want to walk in the pit of hell, you can walk in the pit of hell. That's your choice. But I exhort you in Jesus' name, don't do that. It's not healthy. Life is too short.
to let a bad label that, you know, you're a woman or you're a man caught in a woman's body, you're a woman caught in a man's body. That makes God a monster, by the way. And I just, I reject that. That's delusional, demonic, and death. Just so we make that clear right now. God is not a monster. God is good and God is light and him is no darkness at all. Only a monster would do something like that. It's delusional, it's demonic, and it's death. That kind of thinking. God, God causes all things to work together for good and he's not going to beat us down and discourage us. And the vast majority of people accept the beatdown, fill their minds with the beatdown, embrace the beatdown, and never rise above it. Be great. Be great because Jesus rising from the grave, dying on the cross and rising from the grave and ascending to the right hand of the Father is great. And like I said last week, I don't hope for victory. I come from victory. Because we're his workmanship. We're going to be his work of art, but with that toxic thinking and toxic people and demonic and negativity, fear and all that, forget it. Walk in faith, walk in glory, and walk in the promises. That's what Jabez did. And he was more honorable than his neighbors. Now we read on. Chelab, the brother of Shuha, begot Mahir, who was the father of Eshton. And Eshton begot Beth Rapha, Pasia, and Teina, the father of Ir Nahash. These were the men of Rekha. We're still dealing with the families of Judah. Verse 13. The sons of Kenes were Othniel and Sariah. The sons of Othniel were Hatha and Menoth. Thia, who begot Ophrah, Sariah begot Joab, the father of Jeharashim, for they were craftsmen. The sons of Caleb, the sons of Jephunneh, were Iru, Elah, and Nam. The sons of Elah were Kenaz. The sons of Jahalelah were Ziph, Zipha, Tiriah, and Asarel. The sons of Ezra were Jether, Mered, Ephra, and Jalon. And Mered's wife bore Mir. Miriam, Shemai, and Ishba, the father of Eshtemoah. His wife, Jehudeja, bore Jared, the father of Gador, Heber, the father of Soko, and Jekathiel, the father of Zenoah. These were the sons of Bithiah, the daughter of Pharaoh, whom Mered took. So obviously some from Judah married the daughter of Pharaoh. Verse 19, the sons of Hodiah's wife, the sister of Nahum, were the fathers of Kaliah, the Garmite, and Eshtimoah, the Makathite. And the sons of Shimon were Amnon, Rinia, Ben-Hanan, and Tilan. And the sons of Ishi were Zoeth and Ben-Zoheth. The sons of Shilal, the sons of Judah, were Ur, the father of Lekah, Leda, the father of Marsha, and the families of the house of linen workers, or the house Eshbia. Also Jochim, the son of Chozebah, and Joash, Seraph, who ruled in Moab, and Jeshabi, Lehem. Now the records are ancient. These were the potters and those who dwell at Natium and Gedera. There they dwelt with the king for his work. And this concludes the Judah line. But I draw your attention to this This. This is when you do when you read the Bible. You look for things that jump out at you, especially when you're looking at names in a journey like Chronicles. Hey, did you catch it? They were craftsmen. They were linen workers. And these were potters. And there they dwelt with the king for his work. It describes their livelihood, their vocation. It describes what they did. They were craftsmen, they were linen workers, and they were potters. In this segment of Judah, we get three distinctions of work identity, the identity of what they did with work. 
Which brings us to a good point, because we're told in Colossians that whatever we do, we're to do it heartily as unto the Lord. They, these potters did this work as unto the king, but no, whatever we do when we go to work, we do it to the king of kings, right? Yes and amen. Whether you're working, you can find dignity and purpose and meaning in any job when you're doing it as unto the king. When I came back from Vermont and I was working in the surf shop, when I left California, I'm like, Joey Brand, pipe master, all this kind of stuff. Time I came back from Vermont, I'm just happy to have a job and be saved, all right? So I went to work in the surf shop, and I remember this, this one night I was vacuuming the upstairs at Surf Ride there. It's a big shop, like Jack's or Huntington Surf and Sport. And this kid goes, no pipe master vacuums in this store. I'm like, listen, settle down, nurse skipper. I do, and I'm happy to do it. Because by that time, after working room service for 440 an hour in Vermont and all this stuff, I was happy to have a job. And I took the, like, get out of my way. I'm vacuuming by the board. Like, move. Like, you, you want to take pride in your work. We're, we're, the servant of the Lord, who's a servant of all, is not above a job. And if what you're called to do, it's, it's what you do. You know, when I'm at airports, like ATL last week, and I see the guy cleaning the, to- he's cleaning the toilets when I'm in the men's bathroom, I'm like, I go, hey, thank you. Thank you for your work. See, because our job has meaning and purpose and dignity. You, I mean, and when you walk out of ATL, Atlanta Airport, it can say, how was the bathroom? Super clean, okay, really bad. I always hit green. Because anyone cleaning toilets deserves to get a green punch from the guy that's visiting it. Don't you think so? Don't you want to give them that sense of work? When Jennifer and I are road trip and we're west of El Paso and there's a, a rest area and there's a Latino guy cleaning toilets, I hand him money. I tell him, thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for your job. We want to bring dignity and honor to all work because it's honorable to the Lord. And any job can have great value and meaning when you do it as unto the Lord. So we want to value all workers and what they do. And we want to value the work we're called to do and not lowly esteem it. See, the greatest in the kingdom is a servant of all. And so whatever we do, now here's a final thought on this. Not only do it as unto the Lord, but we do it with excellence. So that's why every morning I go, whatever I do, today all things is unto the Lord. Today the pursuit of excellence in all things. Today better and better in all things. Today believing and becoming that person I'm meant to be in Christ. That's what I say when I look in the mirror. It's unto the Lord. It's pursuit of excellence. It's getting better, and I'm getting better because I'm letting God work in my life. See, it's this passage Whatever I'm called to do today, taking care of my dad's estate, I got to resolve this thing, this check got stolen, I got to deal with the banks and all this stuff for that, or I need to get grand, great grandkid photos for my pop, whatever it is, helping my sister out and help her figure out her taxes, and then what do you do with the church and this person? Listen, you just do it as unto the Lord. Human beings, body of Christ, worship generation, when you do it as unto the Lord, every job has dignity and meaning and purpose for all eternity. And I will say this. It's been said that 80% of the people that work do not like their jobs. Make sure you're the 20% that do. Because again, whether you're happy or not, it's basically like Abraham Lincoln said, I suppose they just used to be. I won't do a job I don't like for a long time, but I can do it for a season. And it's how you frame it. Everything's how you frame it. If you frame it as unto the Lord, and you're grateful, because the other thing I say first thing in the morning is, Lord, I pray for humility and gratitude. Because if I can go through planet Earth on this day 
21st of February with humility and gratitude, I'm a blessing to you, aren't I? Ladies, don't you want more humble men on the planet who are grateful for everything God's done for them? Gentlemen, don't you want more humble people on the planet who are thankful for what God's done for them and they're humble and approachable and teachable? That's how we want to be. Now, as unto the Lord, and I leave you with this thought. We'll come back to Simeon next week because, you know, this is a distinction. We'll just stop here tonight. So I just want to add this last little element on this cupcake. You put the last little touches on it, the sprinkles and the little wafer thing. Luke Caldwell, years ago, the real estate mogul, former worship leader for us in Boise, he said to me about five years ago something I never forgot. Because I want to be great. And he said, Joey, be great in something and then make yourself a master in it. And that stuck with me. So be great, but then find a whole other level of greatness in your greatness. In other words, it's the pursuit of excellence to the highest level, but for us, it's as unto the Lord. And the reason 80% of people are unhappy with their jobs is they don't do anything to improve their presence and purpose in that job. I'll use Scott as an example. He's done a great job, worship leader for 20 years at Calvary Costa Mesa, but I bet the last year has been your best year as a worship leader in the last decade because it's a whole new adventure. It's new things. He's out of his comfort zone. He's doing this. He's doing that. His daughter won a Grammy Award for Pete's sakes in, in folk, you know, like, like this is, that's that Scott. Kind of, Maddie led worship here and she won a Grammy Award two weeks ago. I'm like, Wow. But Scott's not content from 20 years in the school of worship or 20 years leading worship for Pastor Chuck or Brian Burson or Charles or anyone else or WG. It's, it's onward, it's forward, onward, upward to other things. That's why we want to grow all the time and not be in a rut. Be great, but be a master in greatness. You only live once. 80% of the people go to work for a job they don't like and they're not doing anything to make themselves better in that job. And I told you this before. If I could go back to Pastor Chuck in his office, instead of asking for more money, I would ask him for more opportunity to earn the money. Because the first one's entitlement, the second one is servant. And that person who looks for more opportunity to earn the money is the one that's going to get their hustle on and be a blessing to the one he's working for. The one who goes in and asks for more money while not providing more service and even not doing a good job, why would you give them more money? They're just a taker. Make yourself a giver. Be great and then be a master in your greatness. See, I'm in my 35th year of ministry and I feel like I'm still just learning how to teach. I'm trying to make myself a better teacher for you and the body of Christ, for podcasts, for radio, everything. I'm trying to make myself better for you. I want you to have a better teacher in March of 2023 than February. And I'm doing everything I can to be a better version of that. Isn't that the right thing to do? I don't want a pastor in a rut coming up here going through the motions. And I don't want to give that to you. Become a master in greatness in your craft. Pottery, linen, or just master craftsmen. That will always honor the Lord. That will always give you purpose. It will always give you meaning. And you'll wake up with a, a leap in your step and joy in your heart. And a, a, it's forward, onward, and upward. It's all how you frame it. Be great for Jesus. Bring more for Jesus. And whatever season we're at in life, Bring more. Get more, because I'm telling you, I'm going to do some of your memorials, and you might come to mine. And once you're there, you don't come back here. So get the hustle on and get it done in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen?